Section 25 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 13. Roundabout to India. Part 2. On the evening of the third day, we lay off the entrance to the Bosphorus till morning, when we steamed down that charming strait to Constantinople. It is almost a year since I took, in company with our friend Shelton Bay, a pleasure trip up the Bosphorus, and gazed for the first time on its wondrous beauties. I have seen considerable since, but the Bosphorus looks as fresh and lovely as ever. While yielding as full a measure of praise to the Bosphorus as any of its most ardent admirers, I would, however, at the same time, recommend those in search of lovely coast scenery to take a coasting voyage along the southern shore of the Black Sea in June. I have no hesitation in saying that the traveller who goes into raptures over the beauties of the Bosphorus would, if he saw it, include the whole Anatolian coast to Batum. Several very pleasant days are spent in Constantinople, talking over my Central Asian adventures with former acquaintances and seeing the city. But, as these were pretty thoroughly described in Volume 1, there is no need of repetition here. With many regrets, I part company with R., who has proved a very pleasant companion indeed, and set sail for India. The steamers of the Cadivial Line plying between Constantinople and Alexandria, have their mooring buoys near the Stambol side of the Golden Horn, between Seraglio Point and the Galata Bridge. During the forenoon, Shelton Bay, R., and I had taken a caique and sought out from among the crowd of shipping in the harbor the steamship Behera, of the above-mentioned line on which i have engaged my passage to alexandria so that we should have no difficulty in finding it in the afternoon in the afternoon the behera is found surrounded by a swarm of caiques bringing passengers and friends who have come aboard to see them off these slender built craft are paddling about the black hull of the steamer in busy confusion a fussy and authoritative little police boat seems to take a wanton delight in increasing the confusion by making sallies in among them to see that newly arriving passengers have provided themselves with the necessary passports and that their baggage has been duly examined at the custom house all is bustle and confusion aboard the behera and in two hours after the advertised time pretty prompt for an egyptian-owned boat a tugboat assists her from her moorings paddles glibly to one side, and in ten minutes Seraglio Point is rounded, and we are steaming down the Marmora with the domes and minarets of the Ottoman capital gradually vanishing to the rear. People whose experience of steamship travel is confined to voyages in western waters, and the orderliness and neatness aboard an Atlantic steamer can form little idea of the appearance aboard an Oriental passenger boat. The small foredeck is reserved for the use of first- and second-class passengers. The remainder of the deck-room is pretty well crowded with the most motley and picturesque gathering imaginable. Arabs and Egyptians returning from a visit to Stambul, pilgrims going to Mecca via Egypt, Greeks, Levantines, and Armenians, all more or less fantastically attired and occupying themselves in their own peculiar way.
The nomadic instinct of the Arabs asserts itself even on the deck of the steamer. Ere she is an hour from Stamboul, they may be seen squatting in little circles around small pans of charcoal, cooking their evening meal in precisely the same manner in which they are wont to cook it in the desert, leaving out, of course, the difference between camel chips and charcoal. The soothing bubble-bubble of the nargile is heard issuing from all sorts of quiet corners where dreamy-looking Turks are perched cross-legged, happy and contented in the enjoyment of their beloved water-pipe and in the silent contemplation of the moving scenes about them. As we ply our way at a ten-knot speed through the blue waves of the Marmora and the sun sinks with a golden glow below the horizon, the spirit moves one of the Mecca pilgrims to climb on top of a chicken coop and shout, Allah il, for several minutes. The dangling ends of his turban flutter in the fresh evening breeze, steaming out behind him as he faces the east, and flapping in his swarthy face as he turns round, facing to the opposite point of the compass. His supplications seem to be addressed to the dancing, white-capped waves, but the old Osmanlis mutter, Allah, Allah, in response, between meditative whiffs of the nargile and the Arab and his fellow Mecca pilgrims swell the chorus with deep-fetched sighs of Allah, Ali Akbar. A narrow space is walled off with canvas for the exclusive use of the female deck passengers, and in this enclosure scores of women and children of the above-named nationalities are huddled together indiscriminately for the night, packed, I should say, closer than sardines in a tin box. Male sleepers and family groups are sprawled about the deck in every conceivable position, and in walking from the foredeck to the after-cabins by the ghostly glimmer of the ship's lanterns, one has to pick his way cautiously among them. Woe to the person who attempts this difficult feat without the aid of a good pair of sea-legs. He is sure to be pitched head foremost by the motion of the vessel into the bosom of some family peacefully snoozing in a promiscuous heap or to step on the slim, dusky figure of an Arab. The ubiquitous Eurasian, who can speak a little English, soon betrays his presence aboard by singling me out and proceeding to make himself sociable. I am sitting on the foredeck, perusing a late copy of a magazine which I had obtained in Constantinople, when that inevitable individual introduces himself by peeping at the corner of the magazine, and, with a winning smile, deliberately spills out its name, and soon we are engaged in as animated a discussion of the magazine as his limited knowledge of English permits. After listening with much interest to the various subjects of which it treats, he parades his profuse knowledge of Anglo-Saxon athletics by asking, does it also speak of ball-foot? The cuisine in both first- and second-class cabins aboard the Egyptian liners is excellent, being served after the French style, with several courses and wine ad libitum. At our table is one solitary female, a Greek lady with an interesting habit of talking and gesticulating during meal-times, and of promenading the foredeck in a profoundly pensive mood between meals. I have good reason to remember her former peculiarity, as she accidentally knocks a bottle of wine over into my soup-plate while gesticulating to a couple of Levantines across the table. She is a curious woman in more respects than one. She always commences to pick her teeth at the beginning of the meal, and between courses she sticks the little wooden toothpick, pen-fashion, behind her ear.
being greek of course she smokes cigarettes and being greek of course she is also arrayed in one of those queer-looking garments that resemble an inverted cloth balloon with the feet protruding from holes in the bottom she sometimes absent-mindedly keeps the toothpick behind her ear while promenading the deck and i have humbly thought that a woman promenading pensively back and forth in the national greek costume smoking a cigarette and with a wooden toothpick behind her starboard ear was deserving of passing mention the chief engineer of the ship is an englishman with a large experience in the east he has served with the late lamented general gordon in the suppression of the slave trade in the red sea and was anchored in alexandria harbor during the last bombardment of the forts by the english ships the best thing about the whole bombardment he says was to see the enthusiasm aboard the yankee ships the rigging swarmed with men waving hats and cheering the english gunners and whenever a more telling shot than usual struck the forts wild hurrahs of approval from the american sailors would make the welkin ring again there was no holding the yankee sailors back when the english were preparing to go ashore the old engineer continues a gleam of enthusiasm lighting up his face and it was arranged that they should go ashore to protect the american consulate only to protect the american consulate you know and the engineer winks profoundly and thinking i might not comprehend the meaning of a profound wink he winks knowingly as he repeats only to protect the american consulate you know the engineer winds up by remarking that little affair in alexandria harbor taught me more about the true feeling between the english and americans than all the newspaper gabble on the subject put together we touch at smyrna and the piraeus and at the latter place a number of recently disbanded greek soldiers come aboard some are albanian greeks whose costume is sufficiently fantastic to merit description beginning at the feet these extremities are encased in moccasins of red leather with pointed toes that turn upward and inward and terminate in a black worsted ball the legs look comfortable and active in tights of coarse gray cloth but the piece de resistance of the costume is the kilt this extends from the hips to the middle of the thighs and instead of being a simple plaited cloth like the kilt of the scotch highlanders it consists of many folds of airy white material that protrude in the fanciful manner of the stage costume of a coryphee a jacket of the same material as the tights covers the body and is embellished with black braid this jacket is provided with open sleeves that usually dangle behind the immature wings but which can be buttoned around the wrists so as to cover the back of the arm the headgear is a red fez something like the national turkish headdress but with a huge black tassel that hangs halfway down the back and which seems ever on the point of pulling the fez off the wearer's head with its weight at noon of the fifth day out we arrive in alexandria harbor to find the shipping gaily decorated with flags and the cannon booming in honor of the anniversary of her majesty queen victoria's coronation alexandria is the most flourishing and europeanized city i have thus far seen in the east that portion of the city destroyed by the incendiary torches of arabi pasha is either built up again or in process of rebuilding like all large city fires the burning would almost seem to have been more of a benefit than otherwise in the long run for imposing blocks of substantial stone buildings many with magnificent marble fronts have risen 
phoenix-like, from the ashes of the inferior structures destroyed by the fire. After seeing Constantinople, Tehran, or even Tiflis, one cannot but be surprised at Alexandria, surprised at finding its streets well paved with massive stone blocks, smoothly laid and elevated in the middle, after the most approved methods, surprised at the long row of really splendid shops in which is displayed everything that can be found in a European city, surprised at the swell turnouts on the Cadivial Boulevard of an evening, surprised at the many evidences of wealth and European enterprise. In the yet unfinished quarters of the city, houses are going up everywhere. The large gangs of laborers, both men and women, engaged in their erection, create an impression of beehive-like activity, and everybody looks happy and contented. After so many surprises comes a feeling of regret that this commercial and industrial rose that looks so bright and flourishing under the stimulating influence of the English occupation should ever again be exposed to the blighting influence of an Oriental administration. Red-coated Tommy Atkins, stalking in conscious superiority down the streets, or standing guard in front of the barracks, is no doubt chiefly responsible for much of this flourishing state of affairs in Alexandria and the withdrawal of his peace, ensuring presence, could not fail to operate adversely to the city's good. The many groves of date palms rising up tall and slender, vying in gracefulness with the tapering minarets of the mosques, and with their feathery foliage mingling with and overtopping the white stone buildings, lends a charm to Alexandria that is found wanting in Constantinople albeit the Osmanli capital presents by far the more lovely appearance from the sea. Massive marble seats are ranged along the Cadivial Boulevard beneath the trees, and dusky statues, in the scant drapery of the Egyptian plebe, are either sitting on them or reclining at lazy length, an occasional movement of body alone betraying that they are not part and parcel of the tomb-like marble slabs. The tall, slim figures of Sudanese and Arabs mingle with the cosmopolitan forms in the streets. Nubians, black as ebony, their skins seemingly polished, and their bare legs thin almost as bean poles, slouch lazily along, or perhaps they are bestriding a diminutive donkey, their long, bony feet dangling idly to the ground. All the donkeys of Alexandria are not diminutive, however. Some of the finest donkeys in the world are here large, sleek-coated, well-fed-looking animals that appear quite as intelligent as their riders, or as the native donkey boys who follow behind and persuade them along. These donkeys are for hire on every street corner, and all sorts and conditions of people, from an English soldier to a lean Arab, may be seen coming jollity-jolt along the streets on the hurricane deck of a donkey, with a half-naked donkey boy racing behind, belaboring him along. The population of Alexandria is essentially cosmopolitan, but, considering the English occupation, one is scarcely prepared to land so few English. The great majority of Europeans are Germans, French, and Italian, nearly all the shopkeepers being of these nationalities. But English language and bullish money seem to be almost universally understood, and probably the Board of Trade returns would show that English commerce predominates, and that it is only the retail trade in which the foreign element looms so conspicuously to the fore.
An English evening paper, the Egyptian Gazette, has taken root here, and the following rather humorous account of a series of camel races, copied from its pages, serves to show something of how the sporting proclivities of the English army of occupation enlist the services of even the awkward and ungainly ships of the desert. 5.15 p.m. Camel race for gentlemen riders. Once round and a distance. Sweepstakes. Ten shillings. Don Juan, a fine, long-maned, fast-looking dromedary, started first favorite. Commodore Goodrich, K.N., our popular naval transport officer, being as good a judge of the ship of the desert as he is of a man of war. There was some difficulty at the post to get the riders together, owing to the fractiousness of Don Juan, who, with Colbert the Devil, ridden by Surgeon Pork, did not seem quite agreed about the professional beauty written by Surgeon Moir. At the start, Shaitan, written by Mr. Airy, E.N., shoved to the front, closely followed by Surgeon Robertson's mother-in-law, who, with Lieutenant Shuckberg's purely patience, Mr. Dumreicher's first love, and Surgeon Hal's microbe, rather shut out Don Juan. They kept this order until rounding Tattenham Corner when Mr. Dumreicher brought his camel to the front, proving to his backers that he meant business with his first love, and won a splendid race by her neck. Don Juan making a good second, with professional beauty about a length behind. 6.15 p.m. Camel race for sailors and soldiers. Once round and a distance. First prize, ten shillings. Second, five shillings. Third, two shillings, six pence. Eleven competitors turned up for this race, which was very well contested, although one of the camels appeared to think it too much trouble to run, and quietly squatted down immediately after the start, and could not be induced to join his fellows. Abdel Hal Hassin of the Coast Guard came in first, with Wickers of the Royal Artillery second, and Simpson of the Commissariat and Transport Corps third. Second Camel Race for Gentlemen Riders this was got up on the course by a sporting naval officer. Five camels started, G.O.M., Hardington, Gochin, Chamberlain, and Unionist. This looked a certainty for G.O.M., as all but Unionist were in the same stable. However, the jockey seemed to have been got at, for although G.O.M. got away with a good start, yet rounding the second corner he was shut out by a combined effort of Hardington, Goshen, Chamberlain, and Unionist, the latter winning, amid thunders of applause by thirty lengths. Egypt is preeminently the land of Bakshish, and Alexandria, as a chief port of arrival and departure, naturally comes in for its share of this annoying attention. From ship to hotel, and from hotel to railway station, the traveller has to run the gauntlet of people deeply versed in the subtle arts and wiles of Bakshish diplomacy. At any time, as you stroll down the street, some native will suddenly bop up like a sable ghost beside you, point out something you don't want to see, and brazenly demand bakshish for showing it. Cook's tourist's office is but a few hundred yards from my hotel. I have passed it before and know exactly where it is, but one of these dusky shadows glides silently behind me until the office is nearly reached. When he slips ahead, points it out, and with consummate assurance demands bakshish for guiding me to it. 
The worst of it is there is no such thing as getting rid of these pests. They are the most persevering and unscrupulous blackmailers in their own small way that could be imagined. People whom you could swear you never set eyes on before will boldly declare they have acted as guide or something, and dog your footsteps all over the city. Most of them are as humble as Uriah Heep himself in their annoying importunities, but some will not even hesitate to create a scene to gain their object, and, as the easiest way to get rid of them, the harassed traveler generally gives them a coin. In leaving by the train, after one has bakshished the hungry swarm of hotel servitors, bakshished the porter who has doggedly persisted in coming with you to the station, regardless of repeatedly telling him he wasn't wanted, bakshished the baggage man and bolted almost like a hunted thing into the railway carriage from a small host of people who want bakshish, one because he happened to detect your wandering gaze in search of the station clock and eagerly pointing out its whereabouts, another because he has told you without being asked that the train starts in ten minutes another because he pointed out your carriage which for a brief transitory instant you fail to recognize and others for equally trivial things for which they all seem keenly on the alert you shut yourself in with a feeling of relief that must be something akin to escaping from a gang of brigands king bakshish evidently rules supreme in egypt yet my route to India takes me along the Egyptian railway to Suez, thence by steamer down the Red Sea to Aden and Karachi. A passenger train on this railway consists of carriages divided into classes as they are in England, the first and second class cars being modeled on the same lines as the English. The third class cars, however, are mere boxes provided with seats and with iron bars instead of windows. Nice airy vehicles these, where the conditions of climate render airiness desirable, but it must be extremely interesting to ride in one of them through an Egyptian sandstorm. At the Alexandria station, an old wrinkle-faced native, bronzed and leathery, almost as an Egyptian mummy, pulls a bell rope three times. The conductor comes to the car window for the second time and examines your ticket. The engine gives a cracked shriek and pulls out. As the train glides through the suburbs, one's attention is arrested by well-kept carriage drives, lined and overarched with feathery palm-tree groves and other evidences of municipal thrift. From the suburbs, we plunge at once into a rich and populous agricultural country, the famed Nile Delta, of which a passing descriptive glimpse will not here be considered out of place. Cotton seems to be the most important crop, as seen from the windows of my car and for many a mile after leaving alexandria we glide through luxuriant fields of that important egyptian staple interspersed among the darker green of the growing cotton are fields of young rice sometimes showing bright and green in contrast to the darker shade of the cotton and sometimes being represented by square areas of glistening water beneath which the young rice is submerged the Nile Delta is a network of irrigating ditches from end to end. Large canals, big enough to float barges, and on which considerable commerce is carried, tap the Nile above the Delta, and, traversing it in all directions, furnish water to systems of smaller ditches and canals, and these again to still smaller channels of distribution. 
The water in these channels is all below the surface, and a goodly proportion of the whole teeming population of the delta is engaged between seed-time and harvest in pumping the life-giving water from these ditches into the small surface trenches that conduct it over their fields and gardens. The water-pumping fellas, ranged along the network of canals, often at intervals of not more than one hundred yards, create an impression of marvelous industry pervading the whole scene, as the train speeds its way alongside the larger canals. The pumping, in most cases, is done by men or buffaloes, and the clumsy-looking but effective Egyptian water-wheel, a rough wooden contrivance that, as it revolves, raises the water from below and pours it from holes in the side into a wooden trough, from whence it flows over the field. Small rude shelters are erected close by, beneath which the attendant fella can squat in the shade and keep the meek and gentle but lazy buffaloes up to their task by constant threats and bellicose demonstrations. Most of these animals are blindfolded, a contrivance that, no doubt, inspires them to pace round and round their weary circle with becoming perseverance inasmuch as it tends to keep them in perpetual fear of the dusky driver beneath the shade. People too poor, or with holdings too small, to justify the employment of oxen in pumping water, raise it from the ditches themselves, with buckets at the end of long well-sweeps. In some localities one can cast his eye over the landscape and see scores of these rude sweeps continually rising and falling, rising and falling. A few windmills are also used for pumping, but the wind is a fickle thing to depend on, and his utter dependence on the water supply makes the Egyptian agriculturist unwilling to run such risks. Steam engines, both stationary and portable, are observed at frequent intervals. Both the engines and the coal for fuel have to be imported from England, but they evidently pump enough water to repay the outlay, otherwise there would not be so many of them in use. It must be a rich, productive soil that can afford the expensive luxury of importing steam engines and coal from a distant market to supply it with water for irrigation. The sediment from the Nile, which settles in the canals and ditches, is cleaned out at frequent intervals and spread over the fields, providing a new dressing of rich alluvial soil to annually stimulate the productive capacity of the soil. In the larger cotton fields, the dusky sons and daughters of Egypt are seen strung out in long rows, wielding cumbersome hoes, reminding one of old plantation days in Dixie, or they are paddling about in the inundated rice fields like amphibious things. Swarms of happy youngsters are splashing about in the canals and ditches. All about is teeming with life and animation. End of section 25 Recording by William Tomko.